Colossians chapter 1, and we will be finishing chapter 1 today. And if you'll remember, we started studying the book of Colossians on Sunday, September 11th. And uh, today is Sunday, December 11th. And so it's been three months that we've been studying uh, the first chapter of Colossians. And so by my calculations, at this rate, this little book will take us a full year to study, uh, which is nothing. We did Mark in, in two years, so this is cool. We're moving at a great pace. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 28 and 29. It says, And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Lord, would you mightily work in us today? Lord, would you do a work in us by your Spirit? Would you cause us to fall more in love with you, Jesus? What we have laid before us today, Lord, we understand is the honor of proclaiming you to a lost and dying world. And Lord, we just ask that you, as we encounter you at church today, would do such a work in our hearts as to make us fall madly in love with you, knowing that as our hearts overflow with love, our mouths will overflow with the gospel truth. And so, Holy Spirit, as we look into the word, instruct us in our hearts, convict us in our hearts, teach us, and then move us to action. Lord, I pray that you would place callings on people's lives today. Wherever they're at, callings in their workplace, calling in their family, that you'd give people perseverance and boldness to stand for your gospel, and that you would also call people to the nations today, Lord. That we would be moved to proclaim you in these last days. So, Lord, do a wonderful work now as we study your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the big news this Christmas season is that everybody is trying to take the Christ out of Christmas. We see it happening in corporations, various corporations changing their wording and and trying to exclude Christ from Christmas. Uh, We see it happening in uh, the Oval Office. Uh, The President's Christmas card says, Happy Holidays. Uh, It doesn't say Merry Christmas. That's not a reflection of George Bush Jr. That's been true since 1992. George Bush Sr. was the last president to say Merry Christmas on his Christmas card, but it's a reflection on the government, on the Oval Office, that they've made the cognizant choice to remove Christmas and replace it with holidays. We see it happening in our little city of Carpinteria here. Yesterday and down Linden Avenue was our annual, what used to be called the Christmas Parade, which was this year called the Holiday Parade. They purposely and purposefully changed the name from Christmas to holiday. They're trying to take the Christ out of Christmas. But what these people don't realize is that holiday actually means holy day. The original meaning of the phrase is holy day. It's just a little bit ironic, isn't it? Uh, Someone in our congregation recently spotted a sign up at a secular place of business and it said, catch the holiday spirit. That means catch the Holy Spirit. (laughs) They're trying to take Christ out, but they're bringing the Holy Spirit in and they don't even know it. (laughs) And though the attempted removal of Christ from Christmas is unfortunate and it's a sad commentary on our nation, it certainly isn't surprising 
nor is it horribly disappointing. I'm not disappointed by it. You say, what do you mean? Why aren't you disappointed by it? Let me explain. I am not disappointed when the Oval Office or the city of Carpinteria or various corporations refuse to proclaim Christ. I'm not disappointed when they refuse to do so because it is not their responsibility to do so. It is not the responsibility of the Oval Office to proclaim Christ or the city of Carpinteria or secular businesses. Therefore, because it's not their responsibility, you can't be too disappointed when they don't. Verse 28 says, we proclaim him. Verse 28 says, it is a responsibility, nay, the privilege of the Christians, the church to proclaim him. Every individual Christian is to proclaim. And so if there's a reason to be disappointed, it is when the Christians don't bring Christ into Christmas. When the Christians do not proclaim him, because it is our responsibility. We shouldn't expect governing authorities or businesses to do so. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, that we are to occupy until his coming. This word occupy means to be doing, to be busy, to be about business, to be about kingdom business until he comes. This word occupy means to take possession of, to hold down, to tie down, to seize, to monopolize. Christians are to hold the ground, hold the line that the Lord has given us until His coming. And we're not to let those things slip away, nor are we to surrender them. Indeed, the Great Commission tells us in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, that we are to go and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. So we are to occupy and we are to teach the things of God. And so, if there is a denial of Christ in our nation or in our community, it's simply because people don't know Jesus Christ. To know him is to love him. And if they knew him, they would not deny him. But if they don't know him, it's because we haven't told them. How can they know unless somebody tells them? We are to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. And so if there's a denial of Christ, it is not the failure of secular society. It is the failure of the church. Because the church has been given the responsibility and the privilege to proclaim him. And then let me balance this. The Bible does teach explicitly that as we move toward the coming of the Lord, that the world will become increasingly antichrist. We know that. We know that is the way the world is going. But that does not give the Christian license to cease proclaiming Christ. We shouldn't just surrender. We need to occupy. We need to hold that which has been given us. And so we need to hold the line in the schools. We need to hold the line in the nation. We need to hold the line with regards to Christmas. We proclaim him and to proclaim simply means to declare plainly or out loud to declare plainly openly and out loud it means effectively to come out of the closet what does it mean to be in the closet to be in the closet means to be identified with a people group who is despised rejected ridiculed discriminated against mocked and scorned to the point that their voice is silenced. 
There is no doubt in our nation that the homosexuals have come out of the closet. Who then is left in the closet but the Christian? The Christians are the ones who are despised, rejected by society, and whom the society attempts to silence. It is high time that we come out of the closet. And we do so when we proclaim Him. To proclaim is to declare plainly, openly, and out loud. We proclaim Him. Very important word in that phrase, we. We as Christians, this is what we do. This should be a descriptor of our life. This should be something that consumes us. We should be mindful of this every day, that we as Christians, inherent by description, we proclaim Him. When Jesus called the disciples, Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, And He appointed the twelve, that they might be with Him, and that He might send them out to preach, and that they might have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, he chose the disciples, as he has chosen you and I, that they might be, that we might be with him, that they might, that we might preach, and that we might have authority to cast over demons. When we do these three things that we are to do as members of the kingdom, we proclaim him. When we cultivate intimacy with the Lord and spend time with him, our life begins to proclaim him. You remember the disciples, that they were identified as untrained and educated men, and yet it was undeniable that they had been with the Lord. The message that exuded from their lives and the power that exuded from their lives told people they have been with the Lord. They were proclaiming Him. And they were sent out to preach, to verbalize the good news of the gospel, and so proclaim Him. And Jesus said, Concerning authority in the demonic realm, he said, If I cast out demons by the hand of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so the authority given to the believer in the spiritual realm is a proclamation of him that the king has come and won the victory over sin and death and the devil. And when we are with him and we preach him and we stand in the authority of his name, we proclaim him. This is what we do. As Christians, furthermore, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We have been appointed by God. We are the ambassadors of Christ. And so we are appointed ambassadors. And so by definition and job description, we proclaim, we declare plainly, openly, and out loud. And it says there in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we beg people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We beg people on behalf of Christ. The idea is somebody on their knees saying, please, I am begging you, come to Jesus. Let him forgive your sins. Accept his love. I am begging you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. This is what we do as Christians. And why are we so serious about it? Why do we beg? Because heaven and hell are real. Hell is a real place. People want to see that taken out of the Bible today. People don't want to hear about it. But if you remove that from the Bible, you've got to take out a lot of the Bible. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. 
Hell is a real place. And Jesus said concerning heaven that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody would come to the Father except through him, John 14, 6. And so we proclaim him because he claimed absolute exclusivity with regards to salvation. Furthermore, we proclaim him because he said in John three thirty six, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And because the wrath of God is real and it is horrible, we proclaim Jesus and we beg men and women on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We proclaim him because of what Acts 4.12 says, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men must be saved. Jesus' name is the name above all names. His is the only name by which people can be saved. And so saints, we must proclaim him. We must declare openly and out loud the name of Jesus. And understand that when we proclaim, we proclaim him. Two aspects to that. Number one, it means that we do not proclaim a church or a pastor, or a teacher, or a denomination, or ourselves, or any other person or group. We proclaim Jesus Christ. We do not proclaim reality, or Calvary Chapel, or the Baptists, or anything other than Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him. We must do that. Listen. We all invite people to church, and that's a wonderful thing. We ought to do that. But please allow me to coach you in the way that you communicate your invitation. You want to set people up to meet Jesus. Not a community, not a church, not a person. You want to set people up to meet Jesus. And so don't say to people, come to my church, it's wonderful. Say to people, come meet my Savior, he's wonderful. Come meet the one who has redeemed me. Come meet the one who gave his life for me and for you. Come and meet Jesus. Please don't ever say, come and hear my preacher. Come and hear the pastor. The greatest of preachers and the best pastor is merely a tool in the hand of the sovereign God. It would be as though I wanted you to get to know my wife. And uh, that hot chick that made the announcement... That's my wife about women's things. That is my wife. And she is something. And I brag about her worldwide. And uh, you can imagine if I'm boasting about my wife and I want somebody to get to know what she's like and I take them to my kitchen and I pull out a spatula. Look at this spatula. It's incredible, isn't it? Look at it. It's got the perfect slots and it's wide enough for to flip a whole two fried eggs together and she uses it all the time. Look at this spatula. You might go, awesome, that's a great spatula, thank you so much. But you would not have a clue about what my wife was like. The greatest church, the greatest pastor, teacher, preacher, prophet, whatever, is but a tool in the hand of God, just a spatula flipping eggs. And the one that people need to meet is Jesus Christ. Don't invite them to a tool or a building or a community. Invite them to the Savior of the world that died for them. 
We proclaim him, not anybody else. And the second thing that it means that we proclaim him is that we proclaim him as defined in scripture and not anywhere else. We proclaim the Jesus that is portrayed in Scripture. If you want to know who the Lord is, you've got to read the Bible. The things about the Lord are told to us very clearly in the Bible. We proclaim Him as defined in Scripture. And Scripture says about Him that He is the pre-existent God and the creator of all things. The Scriptures told and foreshadowed of His coming throughout the Old Testament. The scriptures tell us that he was born to a virgin. The scriptures tell us that he was both fully God and fully man. The scriptures tell us that he lived a perfect, sinless life. The scriptures tell us that he made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, the lame to walk, and the dead to live. The scriptures tell us that Jesus claimed to be God and the Son of God, that he claimed the authority to forgive sins, that he cast out demons and set the captives free, that he prophesied of his death and resurrection, that he willingly gave his life on the cross to pay the debt for our sins, that he rose from the dead physically on the third day, that he conquered sin and death and the devil, that he ascended to glory in the right hand of the Father, that He ever lives to make intercession for you and I, and that He is the soon and coming King, the conquering Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. This is what Scripture says about the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we proclaim Him, this is who we are proclaiming. And to believe or to proclaim anything more or less is to believe in and proclaim a false Jesus. And there are many out there. Islam, for example. Islam is very interesting and in that it does seek to affirm some of the truths of the Bible. Islam believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Islam believes in his miracles. Islam believes that he's a prophet that spoke the truth. Islam believes that he ascended unto heaven and that he is returning. But then on the other hand, Islam denies that Jesus is the Son of God. It says in Surah 5, that is chapter 5 of the Quran, that Allah does not have a son, nor is he begotten. When we go to Israel, we will stand on the Temple Mount and we will look at that giant gold dome, which is a Muslim shrine. And underneath the dome there, worked into the tile work going around it, is the quote from Surah 5. It says, Allah does not have a son, nor is he begotten. It is a direct attack on the biblical identity of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Islam denies that Jesus ever died upon the cross. They say that Allah made someone who looked like him and he died upon the cross. If they deny the death of cross and they deny the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' cross and they deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Islam obviously denies the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, they have a different Jesus altogether. Please understand, know and discern today. The Allah, the God of the Quran, is not Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Allah is not Yahweh. It is a logical and biblical and Quranic impossibility for Allah to be Yahweh. They are two different characters entirely. If you read about their attributes and the way they work, you will see that these are not the same God. 
You must know and understand that. Our government does not know and understand that. The liberal church today does not know and understand that. The general population does not know and understand. But you, Christian, must know. Allah is not the God of the Bible. Who then is Allah? Allah is a demon pretending to be a God leading people astray. Quote me on that. Not only does Islam have a false Jesus, but the Mormons have a false Jesus. They say about Jesus that he is one God of many. That he was created by Elohim instead of being the creator of all things. And they say that he was created as the spirit brother of Lucifer. They also teach that his death upon the cross did not pay the price for all of our sins, but that you too can become a God just like Jesus. It's the same lie from Satan that was told to Eve in the garden. Not only does Islam and the Mormons have a false Jesus, but the Jehovah's Witnesses as well. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ, say that he was merely a God. They deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they believe that Jesus is actually Michael the archangel and that he has already returned to earth. This is a different Jesus than what the Bible speaks of. But the most disheartening group that has a different Jesus is liberal Christianity today. Liberal Christianity denies the virgin birth. It denies the miracles of Jesus. It denies his exclusivity for salvation. Liberal Christianity denies the physical resurrection of Jesus. And liberal Christianity denies the literal, physical, second coming of Jesus Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. They have a different Jesus. And so it is very important when we look at the population that surrounds us who are espousing a different Jesus that you, Christian, proclaim him to be who he is portrayed to be in Jesus. In the Bible, excuse me, that you declare openly and out loud who he is. It's in the Bible. The Bible identifies him with many names. The Bible says concerning Jesus Christ, that he is the Almighty, that he is the Alpha, that he is the Amen. Jesus is the author and the begotten of the Father. He is the bread of life, the bridegroom, and the bright morning star. Jesus is the captain and the carpenter. He is the commander and the consolation of Israel. He is the cornerstone and the deliverer. Jesus is the desire of nations. He is the door. He is Emmanuel. He is everlasting Father. Jesus is faithful witness. He is the foundation and the fountain and the friend of sinners. He is the gift of God and the glory of God and He is God. He is the good shepherd and the great shepherd. He is the head of the church and the heir of all things. Jesus is the holy child, the holy one of God, the holy one of Israel. He is the horn of salvation. He is Jehovah. He is the judge. He is the king of Israel, the lamb of God, the lawgiver, the light of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord of lords. He is the master, the mediator, the Messiah, the mighty God, the only begotten son, the power of God, the prince, the purifier, the priest, the ransom, the reaper, redeemer, refiner, refuge, resurrection. He is the rock and the rod, the root of David, the rose of Sharon, the sacrifice, the savior. He is Shiloh, the son of David, the stone, the true vine, the way, the wonderful, the word. 
Jesus is clearly identified in Scripture. And we proclaim Him. We proclaim Him. And so because of these wonderful truths of Jesus, it says in our text in verse 28 that we admonish every man and we are teaching every man with all wisdom. We, the Christian, are to be involved in admonishing and teaching as we proclaim Him. What does it mean to admonish? It means to warn. It's not necessarily the most fun thing to do and people are not happy to always hear it or receive it. But one of the privileges of the Christian is to warn the world of the wages of sin, the judgment of God, and the reality of hell. We must admonish, we must warn. If we don't tell the world, who will tell them? And we are to warn and admonish the world of counterfeit Christs. That's why we speak so boldly of Islam and the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and the liberal church and other groups. We are to warn people that is not Jesus as portrayed in the Bible. And only the Jesus of the Bible can save you from your sins. We are to warn every man and to teach or instruct every man. And in the same sense that we warn of sin and judgment and hell, we teach every man of forgiveness and grace and heaven. We instruct those around us in his life, his death and his resurrection and his true identity. And please understand today, Christians, that as we are called to warn and teach, there is no room for political correctness. There is no room, there is no need, there is no mandate from God for us to be politically correct. Seeking to be politically correct has neutered the church of Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him and we warn every man. The opposite of warn, the antonym, is to deceive, to lead astray, to handle deceitfully. Do not be tempted to handle deceitfully, to tiptoe around the reality of Jesus Christ and sin and judgment and hell and forgiveness and grace in heaven. Rather, be driven by a sincere love for God that works out through your life a passion for the souls of men and women that causes you to bring forth the whole counsel of God. That's what we see in the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. He was speaking to the elders at the church in Ephesus. And as he bid them farewell, he said, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. For three years, Paul warned the people in Ephesus. He taught the church and he preached the gospel and he did so with tears. Why? He was so in love with Jesus Christ that he was very concerned with the people whom the Lord loved. And so he was not afraid to warn them of these things, and to teach and to instruct. And so every Christian has the same calling upon their life. You have this calling upon your life. Please look in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be right back to where we are. Excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2.
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It says, And the Lord's bondservant, that's you and I, those who have chosen to serve the Lord. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach. Able to teach every Christian. Please hear me on this. Give me a moment. Every Christian must be able to teach the basic truths of our faith. It doesn't mean that you have to be able to teach it in a small group Bible study even per se or uh, proclaim it from a pulpit or anything like that. It doesn't mean that you even have the gift of teaching. Not having the gift of teaching does not preclude you from teaching the truths of the Bible. Every Christian, we are told here, must be able to teach, to communicate, to verbalize, to explain the basic truths of our faith. When I was first growing in my Christian t- Christianity, I was so challenged by this passage. Someone explained to me that I need to be able to explain the basic tenets of Christianity. I knew that I was not able to do so. And so what did I do? I've shared this with you before. I first went to the scriptures and I learned what they were. Here are the basics of our faith. Here is the good news of the gospel. And I drove around in my car and taught myself. I explained them to myself because, listen to me, they did not readily fall from my lips. They were not easily expressed from my heart. The word of Christ was not yet dwelling richly within me. It wasn't just what happened when I opened my mouth. I had to work at being able to explain the basic truths of the faith. So I studied it, number one. And I worked on explaining it, number two. And then I would play, uh, bad phrase, devil's advocate, so to speak, with myself. I'd be driving in the car and I'd be talking about Jesus. And I'd say, yeah, well, what about this and that? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked that, Britt. Let me explain. (laughs) And so I'd give myself apologetic questions and then I would defend the faith. And when a question came up, I would go to the Bible, find the answer, and then learn how to explain that simply, clearly, and verbally. Every Christian should be able to do so. Listen to me. If you're not able to do so and you're here this morning and you're a Christian, do not feel condemned. Be challenged. Say, wow, if he can do it, I can do it. Learn the basic truths of your faith. Know what you believe. Understand why you believe and practice, practice expressing those things. You will be built up in your own faith and then the moment you do that, God will give you an opportunity to bring someone else into the faith. I challenge you today to practice teaching the basic truths of Christianity. And then it says that we must also be patient when wronged Literally, that means ready to bear evil treatment without resentment. And then in verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Listen, when someone is in opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ, we are not to remain silent. We're to not seek not to offend. We're to not skirt around the issue. We are to correct those who are in opposition, albeit with gentleness and with humility and kindness. Yes, always. But we are to correct. And so when false ideas about the Lord or espoused, Christian, speak up and say, well, actually, that's not true. I'm sorry, but here's what the Bible says. Do it with gentleness, kindness. That's wonderful, but do it. Speak truth into our world. And look what the wonderful promise is here then. If perhaps 
God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see, the Bible declares here emphatically that some people have been held captive by the devil to do his will, and that he is keeping them from the truth with lies. That is why it is so important that we correct those who are in opposition because the lies that they have clung to are satanic in origin. They are contradictory to the Bible. And so it is very important then for the souls of men and women that we speak forward the truths of God, that we share scripture and we reveal the true identity of Jesus Christ. Look furthermore of what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Okay, if somebody can't see it, if they're blinded, it is blinded to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, that is Satan, lowercase g, God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, this ought to inspire you to pray and to proclaim to pray and to proclaim. Because we have been given, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, divinely powerful weapons. Divinely powerful weapons, namely prayer. And with prayer, we can see to it that those who are blinded are able to see. That those who have a veil over their heart have the veil removed. That we can intercede at the throne of grace and ask God to open the eyes and the mind of the unbelieving that they might behold and understand and go after the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of of God unto salvation. God has invested power in the gospel message. When the message of Jesus Christ leaves your lips, there is spiritual power that goes forth. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is like an atomic bomb in the spiritual realm. God has invested power in the gospel message. And when we proclaim Jesus coupled with prayer, then we see the captives set free. We see the eyes opened. We see people begin to understand and to receive Jesus Christ and to be forgiven and be delivered into eternal grace. It's a wonderful thing. But see, this ought to inspire you to pray and to proclaim, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. He says in our text back in Colossians, We warn every man, we teach and we proclaim with all wisdom, he says, with all wisdom. What that means is that we do so in comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of God. That means that you have an invitation today to dive into the deep things of Scripture, to dive into its pages, to dive into its truths to go beyond the milk of the word, as Paul said, and begin to feast upon the meat, the deep things of the word of God, and then begin to express those. Paul says here that we admonish and we teach with all wisdom. That is to say that we, the church of Jesus Christ, declare to a lost and dying world the whole counsel of God. 
Everything that God's word has to say is what we are to be engaged in communicating. That is why here at Reality, we teach the uh, Bible to the best of our ability, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because we don't want to skip any of it. You understand that if you only teach topically, not that topical studies are inherently evil. That wouldn't be true at all. We do them from time to time. There's nothing wrong with a topical study per se. But if you don't teach verse by verse through the Bible, there is the danger because we're humans of avoiding certain parts, of avoiding tough issues, difficult issues, politically incorrect things. Paul says that we are to admonish people in these things, to teach these things in all wisdom. And so we have given ourselves the discipline of teaching verse by verse. And so what comes up in the text is what we teach from the text. So that we are able to say, as Paul said, that we declare the whole counsel of God. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, speaking again to the elders of the church in Ephesus, in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or counsel of God. He didn't skip over the tough stuff. He didn't skirt around it. We boldly admonish, warn, teach, instruct, and proclaim the full counsel of God. And the end result of this given to us here at the end of verse 28 is wonderful that we may present every man complete in Christ. Through the proclamation, the admonishing, and the teaching, we present every man complete in Christ. What does it mean to be complete? The word speaks of that which has reached its term, its limit, and therefore is complete and full, lacking in nothing. When somebody comes into the knowledge of Jesus Christ... They have everything that they need for life and godliness, for this life and the life to come. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. God has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. Everything that is needed for life, for our lives, to see us through to the end is in the true knowledge, the epinosis of Jesus Christ. And it is only in him that humanity could be made complete. He is the beginning and he is the end. It is only in him that we discover, that we discover why we exist. And lo and behold, it is not for you. You do not exist for you. We exist for the glory and the pleasure of God and for his kingdom and domain forever and ever. Amen. And so we teach these things that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so then it says in verse 29, And for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For this purpose, listen, for some purpose in this life, you are going to labor. For some purpose in this life, you are going to strive. Why not make that which you labor and strive for the glory of God? 
Why not make it the kingdom of God and the things of God, the proclamation of Jesus Christ? Why not let your life be consumed with his glory and his will? It's going to be consumed with something. Why not something that lasts? Only that which we do for the Lord will last on the final day. It is the only thing which will stand as eternal and has value for the life to come. Why not let your life be about the kingdom of God and his righteousness? The beautiful thing about that is you don't have to move to do that. You don't have to go to a different nation. You don't have to change your job or your name or anything else. If you're a Christian, you just simply have to start seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness where you are today. What are you? Whatever you are, make it a vehicle for the glory of God. Let it be a delivery system for the gospel of Christ. Let him use you where you are and let your laboring, your striving, your passion, your zeal be the things of God and not the things of men. You will spend your life on something. Why not the kingdom of God? This word labor here, It denotes weariness and toil. It stresses physical and mental exhaustion. Anybody that works a normal work week can understand what that's like. But why not at the end of the day be able to say, I'm exhausted having been concerned with the kingdom today. It doesn't mean you can't have a normal job. It doesn't mean you can't have a paycheck or friends or girlfriends or whatever. You can have those things. Just let them become subservient to the cause of Jesus Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Paul said concerning the things of God that he labored until he was exhausted. I labor. I become weary and I toil. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, in fact, he says that he worked harder than any other apostle. And it's scripture, so we know he wasn't lying. He worked harder than any other apostle. Paul is simply expressing here to us that he was so in love with Jesus Christ that he was absolutely consumed with his will and he outworked everyone else to the glory of God. Also understand that Paul kept his day job. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he says that he worked day and night and we know that he was a tent maker. We know that Paul would wake up in the morning and he would work with his hands. He would build. He would make tents. He would contribute to society in its wholeness. But then there would come a time where he would lay down the tools and he would pick up the gospel and he would admonish and warn and instruct and teach. And I am sure that for Paul, there is no division between the secular and the holy. I am sure that while he was sewing up tents, if somebody said to him, well, you know, Jesus was a great prophet. Too bad he's dead. Oh, well, actually, let me tell you about his resurrection from the dead. I am sure that Paul, all day, though he kept his day job, was concerned with the things of the Lord. And he did so because as he communicated in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, he knew that his toil was not in vain. What you do for the Lord is not in vain. All the money that we make, and we all have to make it, will one day burn. Can't take it with you. All the stuff that we have, and we all have stuff, will one day burn. The only thing that will last is that which was done for the glory of God. 
You will toil and become weary in something. Why not in the things that concern God? Paul knew that he was engaged in a battle. That word there, striving, is taken from wrestling terminology. It indicates the opposition that we face in the pursuit of our task. Paul said that he wrestled. He realized that there's a spiritual battle taking place. It says in Ephesians 6, 12, that we don't wage war against flesh and blood. It's not about people, but powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. That there's a spiritual battle going on and the bondservant of the Lord strives. Not striving in the flesh, striving in the spirit. That we wrestle in prayer and we labor in the word and we work hard in the kingdom of God knowing that we are engaged in a battle for the souls of men and women. And the wonderful promise here, last phrase is this. That Paul did it according to his power, God's power, which mightily works within me, he said. It wasn't his own strength. Wasn't his own unction. Wasn't something he had to muster up or make happen. Where God guides, God provides. God's commandments are his enablements. If God is calling you to proclaim and to represent his kingdom, then he is already giving you power from on high to do so. And what needs to happen in our lives is that we surrender our availability to God's ability that we surrender our availability to his ability, that we confess and know and discern and say, God, I am unable, I am unworthy, I am inadequate and I am insufficient, but Lord, I am available. And the Lord says, by my power, by my power, which is the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus commissioned the disciples And then said, now don't do anything. Don't do anything. He said, go into all the nations. Make disciples. And then he said to them, but wait a minute. Don't do anything. Wait in Jerusalem until you have received power from on high. He said, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And you shall receive power to be my witnesses. In your community, in the surrounding community, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. You will receive power to be his witness when his Holy Spirit comes upon you. If you're here today, and in the midst of this message, you begin to have these regrets of, oh no, I've missed opportunities. Oh no, I haven't been faithful. I'm not proclaiming. I'm not being used by the Lord where I'm at. Listen to me. Do not be condemned today. Be challenged and encouraged because there is power available for you today. The same power that came upon Peter at Pentecost and caused him to preach the sermon at which thousands were converted is available for you today. The same power that came upon the disciples when they were threatened by the religious leaders with their very lives and caused them to be bold is available for you today. The same power of the Holy Spirit is available for you today. All you need to do is say, Lord... I want what you promised in the book of Acts and throughout the Gospels. I want power from on high. Baptize me in your spirit. And the Lord will baptize you in his Holy Spirit. Perhaps you've already been baptized in the Spirit and you're a Christian, you just need a fresh filling. I pray every day of my life, unless I'm having a total brain seizure that day, I pray every day of my life, Lord, fill me afresh with your Spirit today. 
Every time that I preach or witness in my personal life or counsel someone or study the word or administrate here at the church, I always pray, Lord, fill me with your spirits that I might do these things in your power which works mightily in me and not in my own strength or wisdom. Christians, there is power available to you today. You just need to ask the Lord. Surrender your availability to his ability and watch the amazing, wonderful things that God will do in your life. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for this challenge today. And Jesus, I ask now that as we worship you, you would draw us deep into your presence. Give us greater revelation of your beauty and your holiness. Lord, that we might fall more in love with you. Because Lord, I know and I understand this morning that unless we are simply madly in love with you, we're never going to talk about you. And so, Lord, help us to fall more in love with you today. We do love you, Lord, but help our lack of love. Help us decrease that you might increase. Teach us today to be in awe of your grace and your work and your beauty and your holiness and your kindness. Lord, meet us here. Holy Spirit, come and move amongst us. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. God, we're asking that you would cause our hearts to be overwhelmed with love, knowing that when we are in love with you, we will then proclaim you.